The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The enormous benefit to doing a story where people are around who live through it is that you have a direct connection to the events of the past. It's not someone reading a diary or telling you what might have happened 200 years ago. This person was there. And they sometimes, if you're lucky, they don't just tell you how they felt at that time. You can see when they begin to talk about it that they are actually feeling what they felt at that time. That was Lynn Novick talking about her experiences of directing a documentary series on the Vietnam War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. On Wednesday, the 11th of April, PBS America will begin broadcasting the Vietnam War, a major documentary series chronicling the events of a conflict that had huge ramifications for the people of Southeast Asia, and of course in the United States as well. The series is directed by Lynn Novick and Ken Burns, a filmmaking duo who've previously worked together on a number of acclaimed projects. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, spoke to Lynn a little while back to find out more about the series and to discuss some of the secrets of making high-quality history television. Hi, Lynn. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So many UK viewers may have watched the 10-hour cut of your documentary when it aired on BBC4 in the autumn 2017. But now the full 18-hour documentary will air on PBS America in 10 parts. And it, it was 10 years in the making. You began in 2006, I believe. So why did you feel the time was right for this conversation and for this in-depth film about such a key period in American history? Yes, well, Ken and I did feel that it was a key event in American history of the 20th century. Since World War II, it's arguably the most important event. And because of how painful and complex and unsettling it was, it's one of the most polarizing, divisive, and misunderstood events in our history. And we felt that with the passage of time and the access to new scholarship, we could shed new light on it and try to understand what actually happened. And perhaps in so doing, give our country and people around the world a chance to have a different kind of conversation about this event. And you were very insistent, I believe, that the film had to tell the story of not just of Americans, but of the people of Vietnam, both North and South as well. So could you could you perhaps explain what was behind that decision? Yes, absolutely. That was at the core of our entire enterprise, was the sense that, as one Vietnamese-American writer once said, when Americans talk about the Vietnam War, too often they're talking just about themselves. And that is absolutely true in Hollywood versions of the conflict and in documentaries and books, you know, rarely are the Vietnamese perspectives represented accurately and in full dimensionality. It was extraordinarily important to Ken and me and to our writer, Jeff Ward, our producer, Sarah Botstein, our entire team, really, to go to Vietnam, to get to know people there, to speak to Vietnamese Americans here, and to understand the 
complex nature of the war for them. What did they feel? What were they fighting for? What were they fighting against? How did they feel about us? These are enormously important questions, and we didn't think it was possible, frankly, to understand the Vietnam War without many Vietnamese perspectives. And that was one of the great privileges for me of this project was to get to go to Vietnam four times and get to know people and really understand, you know, what did this mean for them? Yeah, you mentioned there that it's an incredibly complex conflict with roots that go back way beyond 1954. Um, so how did you decide where to start and how far back to go? Yes, uh, that was a huge subject of discussion for us and also with our academic advisors who are experts in the subject as well. You know, where do we begin? And we decided to begin in 1858, which is the time when the French began uh, their conquest of, of Indochina. That's when the first French troops came to Vietnam, or what was then called Indochina. And um, the period of French col colonial experience is really primarily what is covered in our first episode. It, we didn't think it was possible to understand what we Americans think of as the Vietnam War without understanding the French experience. And our first episode is called Deja Vu because so many things that uh, the French encountered there and reasons why they did not succeed replayed themselves again and again in the American experience of the Vietnam War as well and have enormous repercussions for any uh, colonial power or imperialist power or country that's trying to exert its will on another country far away, just the limits of counterinsurgency, for example. What are the kind of preconceptions about the war in American society, if any, that you kind of set out to address or, or hope to address by the, making this film? Wow, there are so many, really. We sort of had to just uh, put our own preconceptions um, to the curb and just start over, sort of start fresh with a, almost a blank slate, really, to try to understand the facts, what actually happened. One of the major misconceptions that I certainly came to the project with was the sense that the Vietnam War for American leaders was sort of um, the product of hubris, that we, we thought we could do anything and we thought we could win because we were the strongest power on earth and that um, we didn't understand the conflict and the, the complexities, the challenges we would face. And as the documentation reveals from the Pentagon Papers, which came out in 1971 and many other documents, our leaders knew from the beginning, and I'm talking about really Eisenhower, Kennedy, and then Johnson, certainly Nixon, all understood that we could not win the war from the beginning. And that is a quite a devastating revelation. I did not fully understand that until we had a chance to go through all the documentation and hear them speaking about the fact that we couldn't win the war, but we had to keep fighting. And to some degree, it had to do with domestic political considerations, you know, that the American public wouldn't reelect a president who had lost a war. And that was sort of a a bedrock belief of all of our leaders throughout this entire period. And that kind of um, touches on something that really interested me in that your your, your documentary starts um, states that the war was begun in good faith by decent people. So perhaps you could maybe explain what, what's meant by that statement and how it, it sets the scene for your film. Yes, that, that one line in the introduction of this series in the very first episode has been the subject of a great deal of debate, and I think it has sometimes been taken out of context. What we were speaking about there was the original American impulse to get involved in uh, Indochina, and that was during the Second World War. The Office of um, Special Services, which was the precursor to the CIA, sent operatives there to help Ho Chi Minh in his fight against the Japanese. And the idea was that we needed help behind the lines to harass and understand what was going on and pick targets for the Air Force and that sort of thing. And there was a sense that Ho Chi Minh was the representative of a nationalist impulse in Vietnam 
and that it would be in American interest to help um, him in his struggle. And it got subsumed into a much greater Cold War dynamic after World War II was over. But the original impulse was, as many American impulses at that time were, that we were trying to do the right thing to help people around the world in the context of the Second World War. It devolved relatively quickly, I would say, and unfortunately and tragically for the Vietnamese people and for the 58,000 Americans who lost their lives there as well. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Um, were there any um, things that really surprised you in terms of your own own preconceptions of the war? You know, uh, certainly the deeper understanding of the many different Vietnamese perspectives was revelatory. And, you know, I think in a funny way, I didn't expect this, but I did develop more compassion for our leaders. I think the decisions they made were tragic and wrong in case after case after case. But in reading their memos, in hearing their voices on tape, because we have secret tape recordings of Johnson and Nixon and Kennedy, I I developed a deeper understanding of them as human beings and sort of how they operated and who they talked to and how they spoke and how they thought. And so they became more real to me, uh, more three-dimensional. And that is important because I think we tend, Americans anyway, to think about our presidents in particular, sort of larger-than-life icons who they might be all good or all bad, but they're not three-dimensional human beings to us mostly. And um, this film helped all of us, and I say for myself, sort of gain access to the humanity of our leaders, and that humanity was deeply flawed deeply, deeply flawed. But they are human beings to me now, which I think was a gift. And the only other thing I'll say is, uh, you know, I had the privilege of interviewing an extraordinary woman named Jean Marie Crocker. Her son, um, I don't want to give away too much for your listeners, but she lost a child in the war. And her ability to tell that story at age 89 at the time, she's now 95. She had her 95th birthday last week how she just has gone on living um, with that loss and spending time with her and her family was a profound experience, which I will never forget. And it just gave me, you know, some glimmer, some deep understanding of what parts of the human condition that I didn't have access to. So there are so many voices and perspectives in your film Um almost 80 on-screen interviews from anti-war protesters to Viet Cong veterans. Um, but you intentionally left out the bigger names, perhaps, that people might might expect. So wh- what can you tell us about that decision? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It's a really central um, approach that we had from the beginning was that the quote-unquote bold-faced names of the Vietnam War, for an American audience particularly, but I think for a global audience, they really had their say. And by the, that group of people, you know, who's still around, 
would be John Kerry, John McCain, Henry Kissinger, even Jane Fonda, Daniel Ellsberg. These are internationally recognized icons, for better and for worse. And they are public figures who have their Vietnam story kind of embedded in their narrative of who they are in the world. And in many cases, they've told the story over and over again. And we felt that they wouldn't add much, to be honest, to our understanding of the human experience of the war if they were to just sort of polish their own apple yet again. And that we would include their stories in the film, which we do archivally as they, you know, strut across the stage in real time during the war. But that our film would be based on the testimony of sort of more ordinary people, less familiar faces. And, you know, it had to do really with for an audience to watch this film, uh, to come to it with an open mind and an open heart. And if you already have an opinion about whether Henry Kissinger is or isn't a war criminal or if John McCain is or isn't a hero or John Kerry you know, whether he was telling the truth about his war service. These are questions that have kind of become toxic in our public discourse that we thought that would shape your understanding of the film and the story we're trying to tell. We wouldn't be able to break through that as easily. And what we found instead is by introducing our audience to people that most of us were not familiar with before, you don't know how their story is going to end up. And some of them take extraordinarily interesting twists and turns along the way. And there's sort of an openness to the storytelling and to the narrative as it unfolds, because these are unfamiliar faces. And by the end of the 18 hours, many of the people that you've gotten to know become like your best friends, um, you know, or members of your family, because you've gotten so intimately connected to, you know, what happened to them and how they tell it. And these people um, are obviously sharing um, often very harrowing or very challenging experiences from their past. So uh, could you tell us about your approach more generally, the challenges of delving into people's memories, particularly when approaching these difficult issues? Yeah, it's something that I personally approach with great trepidation and um, concern and compassion, I hope. No matter who the person is or what they've done or what's happened, you know, I want to be able to create a space within the conversation that's happening with a camera on where they feel comfortable to open themselves up. And it's it's painful and it's sort of um, wrenching, can be devastating, but I think it can also be alleviating of whatever burden they're carrying. And, you know, the, the trick really for us, if there is a trick, is that we get to know people. Sarah Botstein and I, Sarah the producer, and I spent probably two to three years traveling around the U.S. and in Vietnam really getting to know people before we ever put a camera on. And we talk to hundreds of people before we actually film the 100 who we see in the film. And so we get to know them. We tell them a little bit about ourselves, explain what we're doing, you know, spend time with them and try to understand what is important to them about what they want to say. We also vet their stories and make sure that what they're telling us is accurate and that they were where they said they were, et cetera. And then by the time we sit down with the camera, you know, there's a trust and there's a connection. And so it's it can be quite magical, and you never quite know what's going to happen once someone starts talking. And sometimes they would end up, especially there's a veteran named John Musgrave, who is a major character in the film. And, you know, I, I knew a lot about his story, but I wasn't sure how he would tell it. And I wasn't sure if he was going to speak about some of the things that are the most difficult for him when the camera was on. At one point, he became suicidal after he came home from the war for a variety of reasons. And I was not sure he would be willing to talk about that. So, you know, you save those questions for toward the end of the interview. And uh, by the time we got there, he sort of took a deep breath. And I could tell he was, you know, ready to say the things that are the most raw and painful for him. And for him, he wanted to do that because 
he has lived his life pretty much on a mission to help other people who've gone through similar experiences in other wars. And so he feels the power of telling your story is there's just no substitute for it. In terms of um, filming or interviewing in both America and Vietnam, what were the key kind of differences that you may have come across? Did you find any kind of challenges with government censorship or or what was your your different experiences? You know, it's interesting. We um, we weren't sure what to expect when we went to Vietnam in, in that exact context. And we had access at a very high level in the government. We had explained to the government officials that we had interacted with that we wanted to tell the human story of the war, what it was like for ordinary people. And they had said, wow, you know, we in Vietnam, we think about this as a collective people's victory, but we don't really look at individual experiences. So we're, you know, we're curious to see what you're going to find and what people have to say. And, you know, we think it will be good for the Vietnamese veterans and civilians to talk about this. So we had essentially no, certainly no censorship, no limits in access. We could go where we wanted, speak to whom we wanted, ask them whatever we wanted. Nobody was looking over our shoulder or telling us what to ask or what material we could use. So we really had free access, unfettered access to veterans and to civilians. And um, we pretty much went about our process there the same as we do here, sort of getting to know people, you know, spending time with them and then understanding from them what they thought was important. And the only challenge really was, you know, translation. (laughs) It's difficult. If I don't speak Vietnamese, I wish I did. I thought about trying to learn it, but it's such a difficult language. So I speak French, so every once in a while, if an older person, I could speak French with them. That was great. But mostly we had translation, and we had simultaneous translation, um, English into Vietnamese and Vietnamese into English while the interview was going on so that we could actually respond in real time. And for Sarah Botstein and me, that was uh, really um, sort of, it's hard to explain, but it was sort of an even more intense process because you're sitting there speaking to someone. They're speaking to you in a language you don't understand, but you can see their face. You can, you know, appreciate the emotions and the feelings that they're trying, that they're experiencing. And then you're hearing in your ear the translator explaining what they're saying. Sometimes he would get very emotional or sort of excited or, you know, dejected about what they were saying. So it was sort of like amplifying the whole experience to another level. It was really amazing. And there is a Vietnamese language version that has um, that does exist now and has been streamed, I think, around 800,000 times online in Vietnam. So what do you know about its reception there? Well, we've been really thrilled um, when we realized that we could make the film available online through streaming platforms in Vietnam uh, and that we had a Vietnamese translation. We were really excited about the possibility that people in Vietnam could see the film. And, you know, we only have anecdotal ex- evidence right now, but... Um, We've heard quite a lot from people who've seen it that this is a story they don't know and that there's kind of a reckoning, a quiet reckoning going on. There's also kind of revelation upon revelation about what actually happened during the war. The During the war and after, um, the Vietnamese people have not really ever been given a full accounting of what happened, of the losses that they suffered, of the um, decisions of their leaders and, you know, There's certainly critiques that are reasonable about military strategy and the kind of scale of loss that they were willing to endure. And so there's a lot of conversation about, you know, was it worth it? Was this the best way to accomplish independence? They look at, I've heard people say, you know, well, look at what happened with India. They were able to accomplish independence without a war. So, you know, these are deep questions for the Vietnamese people to ask and also whether they have, in fact, reconciled as a country. You know, they were divided in 54 until 75, and they have been unified 
into one country, but the divisions are deep. They went through a civil war as well as a war of liberation. And civil wars take a long time to heal. So that's, I think our film is is contributing to that process right now. Talking a bit more generally then, um, having um, produced and directed documentaries on periods that were obviously a little bit earlier than than Vietnam, um, what are the key differences and the key challenges that you have to bear in mind when producing a documentary that's so rooted in living memory? Wow. Well, there's so many challenges, partly because um, memory is, I'm going to say fallible, fungible, suggestible, all those things. And so you know, we haven't had the passage of time that we have, say, since the Civil War, even World War II, to sort of solidify which narratives have, you know, the ring of truth to them, shall we say. So with the Vietnam War, it's kaleidoscopic or Rashomon-like that there's so many different perspectives, and we try to include as many as possible from living witnesses, and you often have people who are in the same place or experience the same thing, seeing it very differently. So it almost becomes an exercise in historiography, if you will, you know, what is history? What is true? And on a meta level, the film is engaging that in some ways. And I think if you're dealing with something 100 or 200, 300 years ago, it's probably more settled history, usually. This is not settled history. And that became part of our project in a way. On the other hand, we also, the so those are challenges which were great intellectual and kind of psychic challenges for us. Um, the enormous benefit to doing a story where people are around who live through it is that you have a direct um, connection to the events of the past. It's not someone reading a diary or telling you what might have happened 200 years ago. This person was there. And they sometimes, if you're lucky, they don't just tell you how they felt at that time. You can see when they begin to talk about it that they are actually feeling what they felt at that time. But they're also the person they are today. So the interconnections between who this person is now and who they were then is what makes, uh, it sort of, it emerges on, on screen in a way that is truly magical at times. So that was um, thrilling as filmmakers for us to be able to work with that. We felt in making this film that the music of the time was part of the story. It wasn't the background or backdrop. It was actually front and center a character in understanding the spirit of the people and what was happening. And so Sarah Botstein, our producer, approached the artists who were still living, their estates, the music publishers, um, the record companies, and arranged, basically <laughs> managed to talk everybody into taking the same deal, which was a most favored nations, very, very low rate for everything we wanted to use. And, the you know, we were able through her good graces, to get permission from the Beatles to use a number of tracks, the Rolling Stones, many other artists, British and American, the greatest artists of this era, essentially. They all wanted to be part of this story. And, you know, often when American films are shown on PBS, you can have music, but then when you show it internationally, you have to strip out the music because you can't get the rights. We were able to get worldwide rights for all this music. And it really speaks to understanding the Vietnam War the music being a central character within it. Could you give us a brief introduction to your own route um, to filmmaking? Yeah, you know, I, I started off, um, I have a degree in American studies, which is sort of a combination of history, politics, culture, art, film, photography. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I eventually, after a few years of working in a museum, realized I wanted to get involved in documentary filmmaking. And I started off basically as an intern at the PBS station in New York City. 
and then sort of apprenticed myself. I, I thought about going to film school, but back in the 80s, film schools in the U.S. primarily focused on narrative filmmaking. So I would have been learning how to write a screenplay and direct actors. And I didn't think that's what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to tell true stories um, and use the documentary genre to do it. So there wasn't really a film school program that spe specialized in that. So I figured I should apprentice myself instead for the same amount of time I would have been in film school. And that's essentially what I did. I, I just sort of worked my way up until I was lucky enough to um, get an interview with Ken Burns when he was finishing his series on the Civil War. And from there, um, I've been there since 1989, working with Ken and his team, our team. And my role has evolved from associate producer to producer to co-director. And it's been an incredible journey. I mean, you know, we work project to project. So I was hired for six months in 1989, <laughs> and I'm still here. And every few years, it's okay, here's, you know, what are we going to do next? And actually, for the first time in my career, I'm now working on a film in which I am the sole director, Ken is executive producer, but it's really a film that I'm sort of more solely or totally solely responsible for in a very different kind of film. It's a film about people who are incarcerated who are going to college. We've been filming for the last three years uh, getting to know people as they work their way toward getting a college degree behind bars. So we're really looking forward to sharing that with the world next year. You've also produced and directed films Prohibition, World War II and Baseball and Jazz. What can you tell us about the process of finding your subject and how do how do ideas get introduced and developed? You know, it's fairly intuitive on many levels. Um, we sort of have a senior committee, I would say, of Ken Burns and myself, Jeff Ward, our writer, Sarah Botstein, our producer, and several other colleagues. And every five years or so, because these projects take a long time, we sort of sit down and we've been nursing our pet projects, each of us in different ways. And we sort of hash out, okay, what should we do next? What should we put on the long lead, you know, list of projects? And for me, it, it usually is something that I'm interested in that I feel is important um, and that I don't know that much about. So I get to, I get paid to learn a new topic. And that has been my wonderful experience working with Ken for almost 30 years. Every three or four years, five years sometimes, just sort of go back to school and learn something new and, you know, become not experts, but at least conversant in a deep way, in a deep way with a new topic. And, you know, also finding subjects that we haven't done before in or different kinds of subjects. So jazz was about music. So making a film in which music is usually underscoring, putting the music front and center. How do you do that? Frank Lloyd Wright made a film about an architect. So in that case, it was a very complicated life and personality, but also how do you represent three-dimensional spaces in the two-dimensional medium of a film? So the best thing is to go to the Guggenheim Museum and walk in there and feel the space. But obviously we can't do that. So we had to find a way with a steady cam and editing and, you know, lighting to give you that feeling. And so, you know, each film we've picked, I think, has hopefully given us chances to grow as filmmakers as well as to learn new subjects. Uh, Ken and I and our team were just thrilled that the 10-hour um, version was shown on the BBC last fall. I We felt just honored and thrilled that the British public had a chance to see the series. And we're also equally thrilled that uh, for those who want to, the full 18 hours will be available on the PBS America channel because to create the 10-hour version, you know, we think it really stands on its own and is an excellent representation of the story we tried to tell. But the way we structured the, the story, the narrative, the characters, the way you get to know them, the kind of immersive experience that our film is, um, really does 
stand the 18 hours that we created. And so oh, we can't wait for the British public to get to see that. Mm-hmm. And and UK viewers can see the complete 18-hour version of the Vietnam War um, in the UK on PBS America every Wednesday at 9pm from 11th of April. Thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast, Lynn. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. That was Lynn Novick talking to Eleanor Evans. And just before we go, here's a reminder that the April issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale including articles on the RAF in World War II, Alexander Hamilton, medieval mystics and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers and in our digital formats now. OK, well that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we'll be finding out about a 17th century actor who helped create some of Shakespeare's greatest roles. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 